get ready for adventure. Islands of it, man. From the studios to Volcano Bay, this is the Universal Joint, a podcast devoted to all things universal with your host, Jim Hill and Dustin Foods. Welcome to the Universal Joint Podcast. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host is the amazing Dustin Fuse, and he and I are recording on Sunday, March 24th, which, based on the news you're about to talk about here, Dustin, I guess we should break out some smell right? Absolutely, and uh, Universal Orlando, they are good at what they do, and let's be honest, there are some really interesting news articles that makes it out there. So I, I found a... Um, a piece of news over at the InsideUniversal.net site by Brian Glenn, and he, he posted about the restrooms, mm-hmm. Islands of Adventure restrooms, and apparently they're going to be introducing themed smells. Really interesting stuff. So basically, the, the idea behind this is that every island has a distinctive scent, and these scents will change with the season. So the examples given include iced pina colada in the port of entry. Mm-hmm. And that's for the summertime. And okay. then in the wintertime, they'll swap it over to gi- a gingerbread scent. There's a lot of cheap jokes I could make here. So many. But the thing is that if you think back to June of 2010 and when they opened Hogsmeade Village and you went to the, the necessary there next to the, the, the three broomsticks, mm-hmm. as you were in there... You could hear moaning Myrtle. So it, I guess if we're, we're going with custom audio for a bathroom, making the jump to stimulating another scent, I guess I can get behind that. But It's themed entertainment at its uh, finest. But I, I think when we're looking at the the idea of creating these scents, mm-hmm. and I just, it's absolutely hilarious. Uh, we'll see how many people actually mention it. I would, would make the, the, the next logical jump and wonder that when Universal's Endless Summer Resort opens on June 27th, it, 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 if I go into my bathroom there, or am I going to smell sea and salt or the beach or something? You did see that that got announced this week as well, that we, we have an opening date for that, right? Yeah, it looks like we're going to be coming out June 27th mm-hmm. of 2019, which is just around the corner. That it is. It looks as though the value... Value category hotel. So let's look at this. Universal Orlando Resort has a number of various hotels that are in their uh, their repertoire. People are looking at different price points. And with the Universal um, Endless Summer Resort, this is just another idea of creating, you know, something for the family. We're looking at standard rooms, two bedroom suites. You're also getting the exclusive benefits that come with staying at the Universal Orlando Resort and including early park entry, complimentary bus shuttle transportation to and from the theme parks and Universal CityWalk, and honestly creating that more seamless vacation experience, staying within the Universal bubble. Okay, now to be clear here, we're just talking about it's the Surfside Inn. The Surfside Inn, And it's suites. These are the, the half of the resort that'll be opening. It's opening two weeks to the day after Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure opens at Islands and brings us to our next piece of news. So they had their big announcement last week. Let's start right off with Sweet Positive right at the top. Great production values, and it's always nice to see Tom... Oh, I'm blanking his name. I, I, Tom Felton. Tom Felton, Draco Malfoy. Likewise, Alan Gilmore, who has done so much great design work on all of the Wizarding Worlds of Harry Potter's, not to mention the films. 
I thought it was fascinating to hear that in order to pull off the dark forest, they are planting a thousand trees. But beyond that, you know, the fact that it was a, an amazing storytelling coaster, which is kind of the exact same thing we heard about the Guardians coaster, not a whole lot of news there. Well, and, and it was funny because you and I tried, mm -hmm. we, we had this actual conversation if we were going to do a, a re-record yeah. of our last podcast, or at least put on a, a tag at the end in case it was going to be something mystical and magical or they actually showed something mm -hmm. and at the end we were like okay this was a good pr piece every single news organization big blogger small blogger you know millions of views had this on their front page no they, and that's they exactly did, you're what right. they did an amazing job of baiting the hook and we all went for it just this past weekend nbc has been running the world's figure skating competition and in the middle of this is a brand new beautiful ad for Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. They actually show as Hagrid's motorbike is going through the gloom of the forest, they do the flame effect coming out of the back of this thing. Are you guys actually going to deliver on that? Because, you know, when the slinky dog goes around the corner, his ta tail wags. Yeah, it reminds me of um, on Expedition Everest mm -hmm. where you pull into the station mm -hmm. and underneath the very back of the train, there's that steam release. Yeah, that was always such a great effect. Oh, Disco Yeti. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But speaking of large animatronic figures, as part of this ad, they show us Fluffy, the three-headed dog. So they're putting a lot out there. I really, really want this to work, but I'm beginning to wonder... Is this going to be one of these rides where to get the best possible ride experience, the thing that, that makes it truly authentic, am I going to have to ride Hagrid's magical creature motorbike adventure after dark because it's set in the dark woods? I think with the amount of trees and, you know, landscaping that they're going to put into it, I think that as soon as you get into the forest, you won't be able to see the sky. But I think you've got a point. Mm. It's a really, you know, a lot of the, the effects are going to be enhanced at nighttime. We will know more on June 13th, which is mm -hmm. when this is opening. Months and months and months went by before they even admitted they were building anything. And, and if we now go down to the shoreline of Islands of Adventure Lagoon and, you know, look out across at the Jurassic Park Discovery Center, we, we see a construction site. As of January, we had the permits and the plans leaking. The coaster that's being built that has no name will load yep. over by, you know, the old Raptor Encounter, and then it cuts back and forth across the waterfront area there. In fact, literally goes across that inlet that sort of went into Hogsmeade Village, it looks like they're they're putting footers for this coaster out behind Mythos. They can't hide this construction. Mm -hmm. It's right in the middle of the, the sight line. When you first walk into Islands of Adventure, you're looking straight across to Hogsmeade and construction. Mm -hmm. So there are a number, a number of uh, locations around the lagoon that you can get a great view of this. But one of the ones that I... I really enjoy. So there's two sides. You can go in behind uh, Mythos, mm -hmm. which will give you a view basically straight across and then looking into Camp Jurassic. And then in the background of that will be Skull Island, Reign of, uh, Reign of Kong. 
But if you go through um, into Popeye and Bluto's uh, Bill Drop Barges, mm-hmm. in behind that, there's a little hidden path that goes nowhere, but it ends on the water. So you are literally, we're talking 40 feet away from the construction. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long uh, Universal will keep that path open. Just, you know, it's all about the construction updates. But if they want to build the community and say, hey, you know, we're building something really big. We're not going to tell you what it is. But, you know, when you're here, you're going to see it. Might as well get some cool views. This is true. We've seen that what Universal has done at this Discovery Center just recently, they put up themed film over Mm. the windows that look out onto the construction. Yeah. As it is their right, I mean, again, these people are storytellers. I mean, mind you, they're storytellers with steel and concrete and that sort of thing. But, you know, they're still storytellers and, you know, they're not ready to tell this story yet, I guess. And if we are talking about a Jurassic World Park, um, we're not sure what the iteration is yet for Island's Adventure, because face it, you know, we have Fantastic Worlds, the park that's being built over by the Orange County Convention Center, and mm-hmm. there's been persistent rumors that we're going to get Jurassic World-themed attractions over there. But now the question is, okay, so we're watching them put the footers in. We've watched them do the side prep. And this sort of coaster, the belief is that they can have the track in place in six months' time. Wow. All right. So you then have to plant. You then have to theme. You then have to build your load unload station and this is a theme park there has to be a gift shop they have to exit mm-hmm. through it so now the question is okay so if it if it's a six-month build so are we looking at what's going to open for islands in two for the summer of 2020 mm-hmm. i find that kind of intriguing because to follow a coaster with a coaster and i also what i find intriguing about this is that Think about it. If you we jump ahead just a year, June 11th, 2021 is when Jurassic World 3 comes out. And, you know, you got to wonder, well, would they hold the opening for this ride so they could get the most bang for their buck, you know, with Jurassic World opening up? I mean, that, that clearly wasn't the case with Skull Island. You know, there was this interesting time where, uh, you know, Universal had sort of tied its Kong movie to the Peter Jackson films mm-hmm. and there's still elements of that but at the same time the ship has kind of sailed on that if you're seeing the one in California that's definitely Peter Jackson's King Kong mm-hmm. whereas here it's kind of a prequel you're the expedition before that expedition and it's kind of the same Kong I guess, you know, again, going forward, it's just going to be kind of interesting to see when they're going to tell us, you know, what they're building, because right now they're pretending they're not building anything. But at the same time, it just if you look at what Universal Studios did uh, in Hollywood in regard to Mm -hmm. its Jurassic Park ride, where they were beyond up front. I mean, you know, May of last year, they announced, hey, we're going to be shutting down uh, Jurassic Park, the ride on September 3rd. It's going to be a nine month refurb. And if you want to come experience this, you know, version of the ride. Get to the park over the next couple of months. And just last week, we got the big schmear on Jurassic Park the Ride. And w- what did you think of that announcement? See, with with Universal Studios Hollywood, they have the ability to do a lot more big and uh, 
you know, just crazy overlays. And with Jurassic World, the ride that's going out there, I think they had a ride that was themed to a movie that was, you know, early 90s and it felt it. Mm -hmm. So if they were to do a full revamp of that ride, it almost had to go to the new Jurassic World. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the we've talked about and I've talked about it with many people whether or not at Islands of Adventure, if they're going to do the revamp of the River Adventure, because it's basically the exact same ride as over in, in Hollywood. But I don't know. I'm I'm very I'm up in the air to see whether or not they're going to bring in the different elements from Jurassic World one, two, and then going forward, what they're actually going to bring in to allow the guests to walk into that world. Because it's all about immersive, right? True. Straight out of the press release here, though, we have an original storyline that takes place within the theme park as depicted in Jurassic World. And again, you know, the specific Jurassic World, not Fallen Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And it mentions here they're going to get additional new dinosaurs from the film, less scenic design and groundbreaking technology that is yet to be experienced within a theme park. They even say the Indominus Rex is going to make her world premiere in this new high-tech Jurassic World ride. This is, in a weird sort of way, kind of a very, very, very upscale redo of, you know, for example, what was done with uh, the old Delta Dream Flight take flight attraction, which then yeah. became Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spin. I mean, it's all about keeping a ride system in place. You know, they're not changing out the boats. In fact, they're very clear about the 84-foot waterfall. They, you know, that, that's your sole means of escape. Uh, you know, so the the ride experience that we've known since 96? And speaking of which, you were you were just talking about how you were, were there in 96, a, a couple of months before Jurassic Park Ride Road opened, though, right? Yeah, we we went down to Disneyland and and uh, Universal Orlando or Universal Hollywood family vacation. You know, might as well see see the sights coming from Canada, being like, "Ooh, it's summer!" But when we were there, it was very interesting seeing how how in depth the original building was. Like you would see like the Jurassic Park sign being built, and you're like, "Okay, this is going to be epic just from the sign itself." Now, keep in mind, at this point in time, we're we're back in the day of Simpsons ride wasn't there. It was Back to the Future. It, it wasn't as IP heavy mm. as it is today. In fact, when we were there, one of the main things that popped out of my head when we were talking about Jurassic Park was we did the, the Backlot tour. And it was when they were doing uh, filming for Jingle All the Way, mm. which is a classic you know, uh, 1996 uh, family comedy starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad, which if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it because it's absolutely hilarious. I think they made box office was one hundred twenty nine point eight million dollars off of a seventy five million dollar budget. So amazing going back in time. But the reason why I really enjoyed the idea of, you know, 95, 96 Jurassic Park coming to that park is that you had this introduction to a movie that everyone wanted to see. Mm -hmm. They were there. They were like, dinosaurs, yes, we can get this done. And I look at the technology that has been enhanced through uh, the last 25, 30 years. 
there's a lot that they can do with this attraction going forward. And we're not just talking about new auto animatronics. We're talking about just enhancements that go into setting the stage. So I think that's what's the most exciting for me about the new Jurassic World, the ride over at Universal Studios Hollywood. Okay. And speaking of advances in technology and that sort of thing, when we get back from this commercial break, we're going to talk about the actual history of Jurassic Park, going all the way back to the screenplay that led to the book. As Dustin was saying just before we, we went to our commercial break, that half the fun of going to a Universal is that you actually get to see movies being made. And if you were lucky enough to get to Universal in the, er the early 90s when they shot a good chunk of the original Jurassic Park and then Lost World in 95, the thing about Jurassic Park is that it came so close to not happening at all, and a lot of that had to do with the author of the original Jurassic Park book, Michael Crichton, who wrote best-selling books but also worked really hard on, as a screenwriter. That's where Jurassic Park originally started. It was a screenplay. He wrote it back in 1983, and the initial conceit was like, okay, so what would happen if, say, somebody could you know, mess with DNA and as a direct result, a pterodactyl could hatch out of an egg. And what would happen in that situation? And Michael writes the screenplay and Michael works in film and he looks at it and goes, oh, there's no way anybody can do this. This is beyond anything that's going on in effects today, which I know sounds weird looking back from where we are today. But he's not willing to give up on the idea. So spring of 1989, after looking at his slush pile of projects, and it's like, and here's Jurassic Park, and it's like, I'm not willing to give up on that idea. But I know it's, you know, I, I know a movie version is highly improbable, but a book, I could write a book. So he bangs out the novel that summer, and that fall, he's meeting with Steven Spielberg. And he's in the Amblin compound, which is backstage at Universal Studios Hollywood. And the two of them are talking about maybe doing a project for television. And the idea they're kicking around feeds off of Crichton's when he was a young intern, a medical student, in a very busy emergency room. And, you know, telling all of these these horror stories and terribly gross jokes. And But let's be honest, Michael Crichton is a storyteller mm -hmm. and Steven Spielberg is one of the best like filmmakers of our generation. So he's probably thinking, oh, that would be a really good story. And then as the uh, the anecdotes keep coming, because when you're in a hospital, you get that kind of interaction on a day-to-day -day basis. There's a chance that that show could possibly keep going year after year. Oh, which did this keep going year after year? This is we're how, talking. How long did ER go? September of 1994 till April of 2009. There were 331 episodes shot. Only just this month has Grey's Anatomy produced more episodes. Yeah. Anyway, there's a break in the meeting and everybody go get some coffee. Let's grab some stuff. And Spielberg's making small talk with Crichton. And he's like, well, you working on anything else? And Michael's like, yeah, yeah. I, I just finished something. It's a thriller about dinosaurs. And I just sent it to my publishers to, to put together the proofs. And Spielberg is like, ooh, I'd love to read that. 
And he convinces Crichton right there to, you know, when he gets home, to send him a copy of the thing that he sent to the publisher. And so, very next day, Spielberg calls Crichton and goes, oh my God, this is tremendous. And But the thing is, he knows there's going to be this really involved bidding war for the film rights to this, and he wants, he wants in early. Mm-hmm. And so he turns around and he literally goes to Universal and it's like, look, there's this book that hasn't even been published yet. I don't even think the publishers have it now. But, you know, we have to get this book. And they do. I mean, Universal's like, okay, it's Steven Spielberg. He seems excited. Sure. So they, they wind up winning the film rights to Jurassic Park for $1.5 When you think about the billion that Disney is spending on Galaxy's Edge. I don't even think this would pay for the Smellizizer in the Galaxy's <laughs> Edge bathroom. Okay, hardcover book version of Jurassic Park comes out November 1990. By August of 1992, they're already in beginning production of Jurassic Park. And 25 of those months in you know that period was spent on trying to figure out how to do the dinosaurs. If you look back at, at some of the, the YouTube, mm-hmm. um, just do a search on Jurassic Park mm-hmm. original filming mm-hmm. and some of the stories that they told about these dinosaurs. And you don't realize that until you're shooting out like one of the, the scenes was about the, the T-Rex, oh, yeah. how he would start to shake yep. like the audio animatronic would start to shake because the mixture of water and all of the the electrical systems that were going in, that they would have to pat down the the skin between sh- uh, between takes. Yeah, they, well, if you remember that the T Rex scene when he he breaks out of his paddock is in a pouring down rainstorm. And this is what's great about Steven Spielberg is that he is such a student of Disney history. And the thing is that there are going to be shots when it's mechanical. There's going to be shots when it's CG. And if things don't quite match up, I need the camera to forgive a multitude of sins. So if it doesn't look good in CG, if the rain kind of pulls focus or or covers, it's like, that's great. And of course, you know where Spielberg got that idea. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You know, the squid scene. In fact, Walt shot that the first time around. The Nautilus had surfaced. There was a beautiful sunset in the background. And the thing is, you could see every wire. You could see everything. And so that's what Steven did. It's like, we're going to do what they did with the squid at 20,000 leagues. It's going to rain. And if there's any mistakes, they won't see it. Well, in his idea, his mentality was, I'm going to go in, build this Mm -hmm. for a movie. It has to work for a shot. No one would ever want to have this thing in a theme park (laughs) running 18 hours a day. That won't happen. Literally, Spielberg... From the moment he's reading this thing, he's like, oh my God, this is, you know, it's it's just in a movie. This is an attraction. And so Mm -hmm. he loops in Goddard and Associates, who've done great theme park attractions around the world, and and brings in Gary Goddard. And he allows Gary to actually read the screenplay before they go into production. And Gary, he reads the book. And so then it's time for the big pitch meeting with the folks at Universal and everybody who's read the script and seen the concept art and the the storyboards knows that Gary's going to come in and pitch the Jeep ride because Mm -hmm. that's the Jeep is in the movie. Yeah. That's the ride. That's, that's what you see. And Gary comes in and says, we're going to be doing these with, with actual animatronics. And no matter how great we do these things, 
there's no way we're going to be able to pull off the Jeff Goldblum scene with the, the T-Rex racing after, you know, the Jeep. All right, you know, and we're, we're going to fail. It's going to look bad. Why go into a situation where it's not going to work? They're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. There you go. But on the other hand, when you read the book, there is a scene where the two kids and Alan, in order to get away from the T-Rex, actually inflate a raft and then float down a river that, that runs through the park. Gary's like, this is the ride. They're designing this attraction in 89, 90, 91. And they're already, you know, Universal um, Orlando had already opened in June of, of 1990, but they were already thinking about the second gate. What people really enjoy at theme parks, especially in Florida, are water rides. Yep. So the smart thing here is let's design a ride that we can build here in Hollywood and Florida that will be a strong thing going into our second park down there. And the weird thing, everybody at Universal kind of looks at Gary because he's, he's kind of convinced Spielberg to do this because Spielberg's the one who put this whole thing in motion. But, you know, Gary goes, he sits down with Spielberg, and it's like, look, we're never going to be able to do anything as good as what you guys are going to do in film. So he's immediately flattering Spielberg. But here's this idea from the book, and, you know, the idea is that, you know, the film and the ride will be of the same world, but they'll be different. And and Spielberg immediately sees the genius of this and is like, absolutely, let's do that. And so they go ahead, they build that. The one thing that they had proposed for the Jurassic Park, the ride, was that at one point you were actually going to go into the pterodactyl dome. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, this being universal, you have to assume, well, probably projected screens. But they designed it. It was going to be very cool, but it got cut because of budget reasons. And as Gary said, it's like, well, look, that's part of the process with any major attraction. You never get 100% of what you want. Was that the same pterodactyl dome as in Jurassic Park 3? There we go. Eventually, it kept bubbling up. It was just one of these things that kept getting, in fact, doubling back to your visit to Universal in the spring of 1996. Here's Jurassic Park, the ride almost getting ready to open, but at the same time, what are they doing on the Universal lower lot? They are beginning prep for Jurassic Park, The Lost World, which will start filming that summer. And the original, and again, if you remember reading the, the Crichton's book, which by the way, Crichton never wrote a sequel to any of his, his books. The Lost World was the exception, and that was because Steven Spielberg himself made a personal appeal. It's like, oh, come on, we want to keep this going. And you can at least decide what the story is. But those of you who remember reading the Lost World book, it had a very, very, very different end. It had a sort of cat and mouse game in an abandoned workers' village on Anila Sorna. Eventually, they got off the island on rescue helicopters, but they were attacked by pterodactyls. Universal had actually cleared a huge chunk of the lower lot. In fact, there's this great photograph of this cleared piece of property with the stakes for the village where they were going to build the sets for the scene. They've cleared the ground and they've laid the stakes and it's now, here's the July 4th weekend. And everybody's going to off and enjoy their holiday and when they come back, uh, they're going to build, you know, go into formal construction on the uh, Lost World abandoned village and it'll be ready in time to shoot this location starting in October. Only what happens is that Steven Spielberg goes off on his holiday and he has a vision. 
And the vision is that he sees a little boy in his bedroom. And the little boy looks out his bedroom window and there in his backyard is a T-Rex drinking out of the family pool. And he just, he can't let go of this idea. And so he gets a hold of David Kovic, who's, you know, the, the screenwriter of The Lost World, and tells him the idea. And it's like, you're talking about changing the entire third act of the movie. And it's like, yes, I am. I think we should have the T-Rex run loose in the streets of San Diego, you know, kind of like a Godzilla movie. And it's one of these things they have to go back to the studio, which, remember, had torn down this entire section of the mm-hmm. lower lot. The stakes were put in the ground. They had just put the wooden columns in, in place to start mm-hmm. framing up the buildings. And everyone came back from July 4th holiday, and it was just sort of like, eh, we're not doing that anymore. Stephen came Road up. Road trip. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen came up with an entirely different ending. Now, granted, when we look back, though, mm-hmm. that that scene, mm-hmm. the idea of pterodactyls attacking people, that was in the first Jurassic World. They had the pterodactyls, well, different types of pterodactyls, a little bit more gruesome, mm-hmm. bigger teeth. But they came down and um, at the end, they were attacking all the, the people that they were running. And that's how the um, the assistant got picked up and dropped into the... You are right. In fact, the interesting thing, there is a moment in... Jurassic World, where they show the equivalent of a dinosaur petting zoo, and they show kids riding on some baby dinosaurs and that sort of thing. There was so much time spent on the original Jurassic Park on uh, attempts to do a baby T Rex that I I want to say Ellie no the the, the little girl uh, she was supposed to ride in the and and there's this pile of Jurassic Park, Jurassic World ideas that they keep circling back on. Yep. It all comes down to, do we now have the technology that we're able to do that? And now that we, we live in this sort of a, you know CG world, it's like, okay, yeah, we can do a pterodactyls come out and attack people. And it's only taken us 32 years? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. So soon we may get the gyrosphere attraction, which I still think would be an incredible addition, but... It has to be done in the right I, setting. I agree. And and speaking of settings, that what I love personally about Jurassic World is that that film was partially shot at Six Flags New Orleans, which they were in there in June of 2014, which that park was trashed when Hurricane Katrina came through New Orleans in August of 2005. But if you actually go to the, the Wikipedia page for Six Flags New Orleans, there have been all of these films that have been shot in there since just because where else are you going to find an abandoned theme park? They basically rebuilt a lot of that theme park so they could then tear it down when the T-Rex and the Dominus Rex or Indominus Rex get loose. So, Well, and I'm pretty sure that we'll also be able to see some construction a little bit later on this year when we're down at, uh, at Universal for the... Um, uh, our live podcast recording event. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay, that's in November, our holiday theme thing. If you want information about this thing that Dustin and I are doing down there. Yeah, uh, we're doing November 15th is check-in mm-hmm. over at the Low Sapphire Falls Resort. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got dinner. We've got um, the holiday decoration tour. Then the next day on the, the 16th, the Saturday, we have the walk-around tour of Studio Universal Studios Florida, which will be really cool seeing how things are are being 
you know, transformed into the holidays. I think we're doing the cinematic celebration dessert party that evening. Sunday, November 17th, breakfast at uh, Margaritaville, and then our historic walk around um, Islands of Adventure, which is definitely going to include a lot of the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World stuff that we're talking about right now, just in live, you know, we're going to be there. You could be like, hey, remember this? Yeah, it's there. Okay. Um, I don't know if Bluto will still be open at that point, but we'll try, folks. We'll try. We'll do our best. Okay. All right. And then what? In the afternoon, we, we do our live on stage uh, version of this show, which hopefully be reasonably entertaining. And then I, I forget. What do we do in the evening? And then we go back to Hogwarts Castle Ooh! for the magic of Christmas. That's right. Uh, That's right. And we get to go and get butter beers and everything. Oh, all right. Well, it, I, no, see, I'm the diabetic. I can look at butterbeer. In fact, the next morning when we go to Voodoo Donuts, I, I can I can look at the donuts. I can wave affectionately at them. Can't have them. We but, can get you some gilly water. Oh, well, there we go. Okay. Throw the starving man a saltine. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so anyway, all right. Well, but if they can't wait till November, or for that matter, when our next uh, unofficial joint show comes out, Dustin, where can they find you? Uh, I'm over at StepsToMagic.com. Trip planning, ideas, top 10 lists, the most random things that you could ever want from a, uh, a theme park fan. Um, I'm on Pinterest. I'm on Instagram. But, you know, with, with theme parks, there's always a bunch of stuff to, to uh to enjoy and there's always new things opening and it's all about knowing the right strategies and techniques to getting the best out of your uh your trip and this year is going to be a crazy one with everything you know opening at universal and then star wars galaxy's edge opening up up the street and it's a good time to know what to expect mm, well that that sounds like an excellent resource okay on my side of the street we got the podcast that started it all disney dish with len testa we got the Marvelous Disney Podcast, which I do with Aaron Adams. We also have Looking at Lucasfilm with the Amazing Dan Z, which we have been doing a lot of talking about Galaxy's Edge lately. Uh, we also have Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, and uh, he and I will be sharing an interview he did with Danny DeVito fairly soon. Oh, wow. And then, of course, we have the I Want That, uh, which is our... Brand new Disney and theme park merch podcast. And if you could do Dustin and myself a favor, uh, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend our shows, we would genuinely appreciate that. Likewise, if you'd like to uh, support what we're doing here, you could subscribe to Bandcamp, uh, where we have some hopefully interesting Bandcamp exclusive shows posted. Uh, on behalf of Mr. Fuse and myself, thank you for listening, and we'll be back with a new Universal Joint soon. It's been groovy having you hang with us for the Universal Joint. Tune in again for this and other great podcasts found on the Jim Hill Media Network. <laughs>